0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most frontier ideas and urgent issues in our world today. I'm Princeton Jr. Tiger Gao. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about internet security. We're going to talk about uh, all the issues related to tech and society. We're going to hit you with all the important debates. Uh, And I'm very, very happy to be joined by Mr. Bruce Schneier. He is a public interest technologist and the author of Over one dozen books, including his latest, Click Here to Kill Everybody, Security and Survival in a Hyper-Connected World. Uh, He has written hundreds of articles, essays, academic papers, and he has a very influential newsletter called uh, Cryptogram, and his blog, Schneider on Security, are read by hundreds of thousands of people. And he is a fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. Uh, And, uh, well, I, I cannot go on uh listing all the wonderful things you've done mr schneider but I, I suppose we'll stop there but thanks so much for for joining me remotely today
1: all right thanks for having me
0: hope everyone's safe with uh, the virus and uh listening to podcasts because we have nothing <laughs> to do with our time uh well co-hosting this episode with me is my dear friend ayushi sindha she is a senior in princeton studying computer science professionally she has uh, work at the intersection of internet of things iot uh, the cloud geospatial as a software engineer and PM at Microsoft for two summers in a row uh, and she has also started her own company Wellpower which is a vertically integrated Uber for uh, water filtration and distribution in, uh, in, in East Africa and she, and she cares very much about entrepreneurship so thanks so much for co-hosting the episode with me Ayushi.
2: Well thanks for the invitation.
0: Uh, well Mr. Schneider why don't we just jump right in I, I, I have to say this is a wonderful book, but even better title, right? I, I, I think you're very proud of this title. Click here to kill everybody. Would you mind telling us a little bit about this? All right. It's a great title. So the point of a title, <laughs> of course, is to get someone to
1: notice a book. Actually, I had a very waterfall way of thinking about books. The title gets you to read the subtitle, which is Security and Survival in a Hyperconnected World. The subtitle, gets you to read the jacket copy or the paragraph on the Amazon page and that gets you to buy the book. So my only goal in that title is to get you to stop at an airport and say, whoa, what's that? Right, so it's hyperbole, (laughs) right? Not going to lie. That's, uh, it's an exaggeration, but it's making an important point. What What I want to highlight is the fact that computers affect the world in a direct physical manner. That we're moving from This world of computers, which are our laptops or our phones, where they're about data, where where we go to them and we use them, then we leave them and do something else, that they are now immersive in our world. And they are touching things. They are controlling uh, our thermostats, our appliances, our automobiles, our medical devices, our national power grid. They are becoming these real-world objects. So hacking, which used to be about data and privacy, is now about life and property because of what the computers are doing and what they're attached to. And, And that's what I'm talking about in the book, the Internet of Things, the physical Internet, the immersive Internet. And I want to make the point that there are security risks there. So that's what the book's about, and that's, that's what the title's about.
0: You call yourself a public interest technologist, right? Uh, and how would you define this term, and, and why is that term or concept so important in, in all those discussions as well? I'm not going to lie. It's a mediocre term, and I'm really looking for a way to
1: describe someone who works at the intersection of tech and public policy. A lot of ways you can do this. You can be a technologist within the government for an agency, for a legislator, in the court system, in, a, in law enforcement agency. You could work on tech with a public focus. You can work on tech for public focus organization. So this is a large umbrella, and we needed some term that, that encompassed everybody. This is a term that I think the Ford Foundation came up with. It's not great, but it's really what we got. It tries to mirror public interest law, the notion of an attorney that's working in the public interest. So that's who we're looking for. I think of it as someone who is using their tech expertise for some public interest focus.
2: Clearly there's a lot that people with this public interest and tech focus can do. And you've given us a little overview of the major problems in your book and how tech is fundamentally different. Can you share an overview of the solutions that you think these public interest technologists need to drive forward?
1: So, I mean, I'm gonna be very broad here. I think the major problems of at least the first half of this century sit at that nexus of tech and public policy. I mean, I know a lot about the cybersecurity problems. We can talk about uh, iPhone and going dark and FBI surveillance. We can talk about net neutrality. We can talk about algorithmic surveillance. I mean, these are all things in in computer tech. But thinking about uh, the future work and AI and job displacement, to think about machine learning and fairness and equality and uh, discrimination, or how government is going to look in in the future, uh, looking at uh, social networks and bots and the rise of uh, basically fake personas that are are affecting our political debate. I mean these are all topics that are deeply technological yet vitally important to society. And so I see these public interest technologists working at this nexus because any solution has to understand the policy and has to understand the tech that you cannot have non-technologists inventing answers because this is going to get the tech wrong and you can't have techies inventing answers. They're going to get the policy wrong. So it, it's, it's working people at this nexus that I think is going to be critical to problem solving in this century. Uh, bioengineering, we, we can, it just, the list just goes on in the way tech is going to affect society.
0: Um,
2: th- thanks for sharing that. Something that immediately came to mind was companies, um, big tech companies such as Google, who have legal experts, they have policy experts in-house. I'm curious to know what your views are on that, because I personally hold the skeptical view I see something like the GDPR policies that Facebook and and Google having people on the inside, having these public interest technologists on the inside, actually, you know, it's some would argue enable them to um, be less affected on this by GDPR um, laws and like other advertisers. So clearly there's a question of intention here of these public interest technologists. How do you respond
1: to that sort of criticism? So I think that's that's fair, but it's important they have them anyway so gdpr is a good example this is the european data privacy law so like any big law the companies will have lobbyists on staff they'll have attorneys in their organizations that'll try to shape the law i don't think we can get away from this this will be true regardless of what we do companies will try to fight for their interests in the political arena Uh, using money where they can, using power where they can, using influence. And yes, you're right, they have undue influence, and and that's bad. The answer is not going to be to say, look, Google, you can't have any attorneys on staff. That's not going to solve that. It'll be we need attorneys and policymakers in government, in the EU in this case, who can stand up for them. So public policy is similar. And I'll tell you a story about Google. They actually invented a job description, and I think 2006, and this is staff, no, it's called Project Council, and so Google has had attorneys since forever, and what they would do is they would build some tech project, Google Maps, something else, and then at the end, they'd show it to the legal department and say, what do you think about this? Like, is this good? Are there any problems? Should we worry about anything? And the legal department would would make suggestions and changes, and maybe they'd listen, maybe they wouldn't. But it was expensive, right? Because it's at the end of the project, and the legal department saying, you can't do this. You have to do it in a certain way. So what Google decided is they would embed attorneys in project development teams from the beginning to look for potential legal issues and make suggestions in the beginning when it was cheaper to make changes. So I think they should do the same thing with policy people instead of at the end of a project, going to some group and saying, what are the policy implications? Should we worry that we will like trash democracy or something that in the beginning, a policy expert would be involved in the the systems design where making changes is easy. So yes, you're right. They're going to be an advocate for the company. They're not going to be an advocate for the public interest, but if they understand the public interest uh, issues, they'll be more likely to design something that is beneficial to society. They might say, you know, you don't have to design it this way, where democracy could be endangered. You can design this other way, which will be equally profitable, equally useful, but it'll be better. And as we see more regulations, I think it'll be important for them. So I don't want to deny the companies the expertise. I want them to use it well. And that also gives me a a market, gives me a career path for these public interest technologists who can work in government, who can work in civil society, who can work in corporations, can move between those, just like public interest attorneys do today.
0: But Mr. Schneider, that's a very optimistic look. Don't you think so? Because uh, one could argue that Google's mission or big tech's mission is uh, shareholder value maximization and surveillance capitalism. And as long as this business model isn't uh, appended from bottoms up, uh, no matter how many public interest technologies they recruit, it will only work for the shareholder profits rather than public interest per se. hundred percent. And that's the deal. So I don't <laughs> think you can
1: argue anything else. That's right. My, my, Google's job is not saving society. Google's job is making a max amount of money. And yes, there are going to be problems that have to be solved at a different level. And and we can talk about surveillance capitalism and that as a business model has caused a lot of problems in society. And going doing away with that would be extraordinarily valuable. We could talk about antitrust and the fact that these companies are pretty much all monopolies, are doing an enormous amount of, of harm to society. So I'm not saying this solves everything, but I think this is an important piece of the solution. But yes, there are way bigger problems that you should expect companies like Google and Facebook to fight and we just have to uh fight against them and win
0: so why don't we go a little bit deeper on this topic of surveillance capitalism and how those companies uh, in effect are encouraging security flaws because that's what you wrote in your book click here to kill everybody uh, at the beginning of the interview you mentioned how these days it is easier and easier for Uh, hackers to go into uh, to hack a thermometer or because it's everything is kind of a a computer nowadays so uh, you know your iPhone is more of a computer rather than a phone so and because things are so easily hackable and because uh, companies are operating under this business model of surveillance capitalism you believe that those flaws are actually end up being enhanced and encouraged by that business model. So it's a self-reinforcing screwed up loop. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about that? So it's a little more complicated than that. So there are vulnerabilities
1: in our software, I mean, right, in Windows and in iOS and in, in Android operating system. And we know this through this, the endless stream of security patches we get for these systems. And Internet of Things devices are no different. Those are flaws not put there deliberately But those flaws are there largely because the economic model for these products and services is to deliver functionality and not security, right? There's no uh, real detriment to bad security. So companies don't invest in much in security that we would want. So there needs to be a whole regulatory regime there to sort of raise the cost of insecurity so that we get more secure software better patching and just a better environment for for our software separate to that is the business model of surveillance that actually limits what kinds of security you're going to be offered and so we are we are doing this over zoom and zoom has been in the news in the past several uh, weeks about their security and privacy practices they weren't great, uh, half because the company really, you know, didn't prioritize security, and then other half because they were surveilling their users, and almost certainly uh, selling or using that data for for their own benefit. And you know, because of the public scrutiny, they have largely cleaned up their act. it's, it's been pretty impressive to watch. They have a little, they still have more to go, but I, I think they've done an sort of an admirable job under. Uh, pretty extreme circumstances to improve the security and privacy. But still, there is that business model of surveillance. So, so there are two things going on. There is the, the fact that security isn't rewarded in the marketplace, and that's something just security regulations can solve. And there is the fact that spying on the users is a reward in the marketplace. And that's, again, something that a wholly different set of regulations can solve. So I kind of need both.
2: That makes sense to to need both. And it seems like this policy you're alluding to will definitely make some waves when it comes to commercial surveillance. But um, I'm wondering, governments also benefit from consumer insecurities. They also benefit from some sort of surveillance, one could argue. And so then do you think the government's um, intentions and incentives are really aligned to protect consumers from not just corporate greed, but from the government um, itself? And do you think this faith and hope are misplaced?
1: You know, I hope they're not misplaced. In general, we do build government systems that are more democratic, more egalitarian, more humane, more liberty-preserving over the decades, over the centuries. So long-term, I think we are uh, on a good track. Short-term, you're 100% right that Governments use the surveillance as well. And it's, it's not that they do it themselves. They largely piggyback on corporate surveillance. I mean, So we read about the, all the NSA surveillance that happens. Uh, the Snowden documents taught us a lot. And it's not that the NSA said, well, let's spy on everybody. They said, corporations <laughs> are spying on everybody already. Let's just get ourselves a copy. And that's what they did. So there is this, what I think of as a public-private surveillance partnership where they are helping each other. And there is this way in which the government uses what corporations provide. In the United States, there's a certain legal regime that is used to get, to get this data. It moves to a country like China, and it's a really different legal regime. And the data is used by those two governments for different purposes. But certainly there is too much spying on the government side. But the government isn't monolithic. The government's very complex. What the NSA does isn't what the FBI does. And what either of them do might not be what the Congress wants. So there is this competition's a bad word, but there is this array of views in government. And I think in the long term, the views that preserve privacy will win. Now, we're seeing that play out now with with COVID-19, that all of this talk about surveillance uh, in the service of public health might happen in the crisis, but we hope it's done in such a way that after the crisis is over, we can drop back to normal time. And a lot of people are saying that. So I'm more heartened than what we saw after, The terrorist attacks September 11th, when a lot of the privacy we lost in an effort to prevent terrorism was a permanent loss. So I'm not arguing that there are lots of fights. Uh, I don't think I'm overly optimistic. I think I'm realistic. But I think long term, we will actually solve this. Short term, I share your pessimism.
2: Well, when it comes to long-term, I'm wondering how the introduction of something like um, the Ring um, cameras from Amazon or Google Nest complicate this. So for um, members in the audience who aren't very familiar, Ring is a smart doorbell um, recently, or not recently, but um, basically purchased by Amazon. And so through the Neighbors app, people are able, so individual homeowners who have these rings are actually able to opt in to share their private feeds with law enforcement, creating this sort of private surveillance network that is in some cases an extension of the government's own surveillance network. So I'm wondering how this complicates things since people are opting in. Um, does that concern you at all when it comes to privacy?
1: So it does, I mean, and ring is super creepy. Not only because we're (laughs) spying on our neighbors, but because uh, Ring uh, has agreements with police forces that are secret to try to uh, get the police to uh, basically do their marketing for them. This is public-private surveillance partnership. And because it's Ring, because it's Amazon, the same uh, legal protections that we might have against the police spying us don't apply. There's a lot going on here. There is this creepiness. I mean, most of the surveillance that happens to us is opt-in. Every one of us has a smartphone in our pocket. That is an incredibly effective surveillance device. I mean, just take location data. That phone knows where we live, knows where we work. Uh, We all have one. It knows who we're with, uh, knows where we sleep. We all have one. It knows who we sleep with. And we all effectively opt into that. We might not realize what we're opting into, but we do. Google search is incredibly invasive. I mean, Google knows all of our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our worries, our aspirations. Uh, it knows what kind of porn every person likes. It's, it, it, you know, again, it, it, it just knows so much about us, and we opt into all of it. Right? We want a world where we can opt into the benefits of these technologies without being forced to opt into the surveillance. And that's what I'm looking for.
0: But, but just to play devil's advocate here, a lot of people would say, you can't have it both ways. In order to get the benefits, you also have to opt in the surveillance. Because, so, for example, if I were Google, I could say, I'm giving you free maps. Then why can't I know your location? If I'm making your life easier, why can I get those other perks? So, so how would you respond to that?
1: So, so that's right. But we in society say there are some things you can't do, right? So, you know, 100 years ago, it was a great business sending seven-year-olds up chimneys to clean them, right? And everyone opted in. It was a great service. And honestly, we can't get chimneys cleaned without using seven-year-olds. Government decided that is an unethical business model, and you're not allowed to do that, Period we have surveillance as the business model of the internet, largely as an accident, because there's really no other way to charge for services in the mid-90s. So the advertising model was what we uh, glommed on to, and that became personal advertising. So right now, we are giving away services in exchange for surveillance. Uh, my belief is that's an immoral business model, and that we just won't do that in 20 years. We'll do other things. There'll be other ways to get Google search other than giving away your personal data. You can get Google Maps. I mean, yes, Google has to know where you are to give you driving directions, but 10 minutes after that, it could delete the data. Doesn't need to keep it forever. Doesn't need to know who you sleep with. Doesn't need to correlate it. I mean, all of these things are the way the internet works today. They're not necessary, so we get to decide as society what aspects can be translated into commerce and what can't. And for example, you are not allowed to sell your kidney. It's your property. It's in your body. It is illegal for you to sell it. We have decided that a market in human organs is immoral, and we're not going to allow it to exist, even if all the parties. Are consenting, you can't do that. I mean, that's just and that's just one example of where we as society step in and regulate the market.
0: Uh, so it, it sounds like to me that what truly needs to happen right now is is for public interest technologists like you to raise awareness and educate the public, so that public can be more aware of the potential ethical dilemmas or gray areas behind it. Because for regular consumers. They might not even realize there is any ethical dilemma there because you could say that tons of people in uh, the neighborhoods that Ayushi just brought up would love to opt in with the private uh, public surveillance uh, partnership to increase their uh, security. You could say that uh, billions of you know the, the whole Chinese population opt in uh, to have their data taken uh, so that they could enjoy all kinds of benefits. So, uh, do you just so, so is the solution? that we really needed has to come from this kind of bottoms-up awareness? Yeah,
1: you know, I, I, I'm afraid it does. I, I don't want it to, but I
0: think it might. And the fact that
1: none of these things are campaign issues ever, I think is a problem. Because, you know, the, earlier we talked about uh, corporate influence, lobbying and other ways corporations get their agendas uh, passed as legislation. I mean, the way to prevent that is going to be uh, grassroots efforts against it. And those are rare. And we had one today. So this morning, the uh, sale of .org to a private equity firm was blocked by ICANN. That is an amazing rare victory for grassroots organizing. That was a done deal months ago. It was going to happen. The sale was going to go through. .org would be in these in this private for-profit hands we we no one knew what was going to happen we all thought it was bad and it was an intense uh letter writing and uh protesting and uh, convincing the California attorney general to step in and other internet luminaries to to make their views known and you know we don't know what's going to happen moving forward i bet there are going to be lawsuits but I can. who's in charge of the .org domain, said no this morning. Rare victory. That doesn't happen a lot. Usually the corporations get their way. Uh, because you're right. These issues are complex. These issues are hard to understand. It's hard for me to explain to the average person why the sale of .org matters or why uh, your ring doorbell or Nest thermostat or surveillance on your iPhone or whether Facebook should... Uh, show political ads without having to be uh, regulated by the same rules that broadcasters are matters. And until that happens, we're unlikely to get meaningful change. And I think that's worrisome because these are deep tech issues. But I think we have this problem elsewhere. We have this problem in climate change that because the science is complicated, it's hard to get the public involved in the right way. At least in climate change, you really see the effects of it you know, in in the past dozen or so years in a way we haven't yet in in internet security. My fear is, and I wrote this in my latest book, is that the internet of things will change it. Because it's no longer about data, there'll be cars crashing. And cars crashing, people notice in a way, you know, they don't notice data thefts. So we'll see. But I do worry that you're right, that it will require a bottom-up, grassroots individual saying, We don't want this anymore before there's real change. And even then I worry about it.
0: So why don't we go a little bit deeper on why you think uh, having Internet of Things or this IoT revolution could really raise people's awareness. Uh, You you talked a lot about in your most recent book, uh, I gave the thermostat uh, example that's probably didn't do justice. Uh, Would you mind telling us a little bit more why should people start to care? Why would people start to care? because the Internet of
1: Things is about life and property. I mean, that's really why the Internet of Things matters, that it's not someone hacking uh, your hospital and stealing your private patient medical records. It's them hacking your hospital and changing your blood type. It's not them hacking your car and turning off a Bluetooth microphone and listening to your conversations. It's them disabling the brakes. But the Internet of Things, because it affects the world in a direct physical manner touches our lives in a way data doesn't. In, you know, It might not be less important, but it is way more visceral. And, and we're seeing that because you know, we're seeing the regulatory agencies for medical devices, for automobiles, for airplanes, starting to wrestle with these, with these computer security issues. We're actually worried that someone will hack an airplane from the ground. That'd be really bad. And I live in Minnesota, we have cold winters. If someone hacks my thermostat when I'm on vacation, wow, remember vacations? So it used to be when we were <laughs> younger, we would go places outside our home and eat in buildings with strangers close to us. It was a very weird time, but, but you can read about it in your old books. <laughs> but, I, but if I happen to leave my home and go on vacation, Someone could hack a thermostat, freeze my pipes, and cause property damage. So I think that changes the equation. Yeah, well, I mean, when you frame, like, IOT is,
2: is fundamentally different because it's about life and property, um, that makes a lot of sense, and that's really compelling. So I guess I'm wondering, then, what's the solution? Either from, like, the bottoms-up grassroots approach, as you mentioned earlier, or through a um, governmental slash policy approach? And at what point should the solutions to these be non-technical?
1: So I think all the solutions are not, uh, let, let, let me say that, that different. All the solutions contain technology, but they will all be policy driven. So, right, we need policies here that take the tech into account. So a lot of this is going to be the traditional traditional regulatory levers that we're used to, uh, re, uh, regulations, standards, liabilities, international agreements. And they're all going to have problems. They're all, none of them are going to work perfectly, but together, you know, they will improve security, but they'll improve it by improving technology. So, you know, earlier we talked about, uh, you know, different uh, companies that have our data and are not, not really incented to, to keep it secure. So good regulation on a company like Equifax, remember what, 2016, 18, I forget the year, Equifax lost, what, 150 million personal records of Americans and a bunch of other records of non-Americans. Uh, they did not have any real incentive to keep that data secure. So they, we will need some regulatory structure that forces companies like Equifax to secure our data. Now, I don't want those regulations to be too prescriptive, because I want the, the tech market to figure out how to do it. Is it going to be through encryption? Is it going to be through anonymization? Is it going to be through data aggregation and deletion? You know, whatever the techniques are, you figure it out. I just want a regulation that says... If you lose the data of individuals there will be some fine. I will want to raise the cost. So in liabilities are the same thing, if I can sue Equifax then they will take that potential of a lawsuit into account when they're making decisions about how to secure data. So there's a lot and I don't want to minimize this, this is actually very complex. The, this is the last third of my book so I, I'm not even beginning to do it justice. But that's that's the sort of way to think. The solutions will be tech and policy together. They'll be policy driven. They'll have a, a lot of tech in them.
2: Got it. So it makes sense that you know there's going to be a clear role of technology in the policy. But I'm wondering when you said you go out and fix that. Um, and I just I love the sort of call to action when you said you. But I'm a little confused. Who is you? Who owns that security? Who's ethically responsible for this?
1: Fair question. Right. So, in in, in the minor, it's the companies that are responsible. You know, it's Equifax's database, it's their systems, they're responsible. Uh, They don't have the incentive. So, now we are responsible, we being uh, the government, society, to make them responsible. So, it's an interesting uh, sort of meta model here. You want the entity who is in the best position to fix the problem to be responsible for the problem you don't want what we have with Equifax it's my problem when they lose the data but I have no ability to secure the data it's not when they lose data it's not really their problem they don't care and they have all the ability to fix it right so that mismatch doesn't work so the goal of regulation will be to move the responsibility to the entity, who can fix it? But it is our responsibility, writ large, society, to do that move. And this is hard. I mean, we live in a democracy. You know, ostensibly, we, the people, are in charge of our own laws, and we pass the laws we want. And in reality, it doesn't work that cleanly. Right? You know, the money and power get what they want, and and people don't. And you know, we're seeing that a lot right now in COVID nineteen. Who's getting the money for the bailouts? It's not the small businesses, it's large corporate chains. So, which, which kind of sucks, but that's the system we have. So, you know, there's a lot here that, that is hard to fix, but that's the general flavor of, of what I'm thinking.
2: And so this idea about people who are most capable of fixing the problem should be the ones who are incentivized to, I think that's really important for like people uh, like me studying computer science as well as our listeners, um, but I'm wondering more, about this question of who is capable in this case, to kind of to be a little more specific. Um, Some people argue that when it comes to like IoT manufacturing and security, that larger companies such as the Microsofts or Amazons should be the ones who are responsible for building this software, the security, because they're the most capable to fix it. and in your book, you do note that a lot of software is poorly written and insecure, and you alluded earlier to a lot of these, like, market forces that maybe don't align for these creators of IoT and, like, the hardware, the hardware people to um, deal with this. Yet, at the same time, centralization does raise its own challenges and limitations. So, where's your head at with that?
1: So, I just did a paper on this. It's going to be coming out, I think, in about a month uh, with the Atlantic Council. It's so a student at uh, the Kennedy School, myself and uh, some Atlanta Council, looking at the supply chain for IoT and where to put the regulations. And we came to the conclusion that the best place to put the pressure is the end of the supply chain. You mentioned Amazon. That's exactly right. The Amazons, the Walmarts, the companies that sell the thing to the consumers. Right? So let's think about a, another example, uh, pajamas. There are rules that you can't sell pajamas that catch on fire. And, and the rules are there because cheap pajamas 50 years ago were flammable. And right, kids would die in fires because their pajamas would, catch, would, would ignite and you couldn't put them out. So it is illegal to sell those. That prohibition is on the store you buy them to it is their responsibility to go to the factory in china or taiwan or wherever those pajamas are made and say look they have to be flame retardant it is the responsibility of your supermarket to make sure the food is safe it's responsibility of the united states pharmaceutical company to ensure that the pills that are probably made offshore somewhere are Made in accordance to whatever uh, FDA, uh, you, uh, whatever regulations, and so it is. It is that's the, that's the group. and I think that works for IoT as well. Right, so we can't go to all the drone manufacturers around the world and make sure the devices are secure and don't crash and can't be taken over, whatever the rules are. But eventually, but we can go to whatever company is selling those drones on the U.S. market and say, if you sell a drone, that's to meet these regulations. So that seems to be the right way to put the pressure on a very international supply chain. Because the point of contact of the consumer is most likely an American company. It's not a lot of them. And if you think about where you're buying your Internet of Things stuff, it's probably a dozen websites and, you know, equal, equal number of national chains. So that's where we can put the regulation on. That's where we can put the burden, They are in a good position to go up the chain and say, if you, you have to meet this regulation and maybe that's a distributor. The distributor goes up and says, you, you international shipper have to meet these regulations. And then they go up to you, you international manufacturer, you have to meet these regulations. Then it cascades down to the consumer.
2: Yeah, in this hyper-connected world, um, it makes a lot of sense that you suggest we should put this pressure on uh, the Amazons of the world. But in your book and in some of your writing, you've also discussed um, other solutions that are not just sort of political pressures, one one of which is particularly for security, is open source. And so I'm wondering, how does open source work, particularly for these larger companies who tend to be more centralized? Do you see that to be inherently at odds, or is there a way in which which both can
1: coexist? I don't think open source affects this. I I don't think it's an either or. Uh, A lot of these Internet of Things systems use open source libraries, use open source uh, components, because it's easier and cheaper. It's the stuff out there you can grab and use for free. And there's a surprising amount of open source software in the proprietary systems that you use. And you just don't even realize it because they don't advertise it. They just, they just use it. And I think that is part of the solution. I don't want it to matter whether you use open source or closed source. I don't think open source gives you security for free. I don't think closed source is, is less secure, out of the box. What matters is, is the software evaluated? You know, Is someone looking at it? And and that's going to be through regulation, and you know it'll work either way.
0: Uh, would you mind just helping us clarify a little bit more about the concept of open source or decentralization, especially for a non-technical person like me? What's the vision that you would have, the the ideal state that we could reach?
1: So, there's a, something uh, being talked about, the U.S. Department of Commerce. It's not an idea that the companies like so. It's, you'll have to talk about it quietly. The notion is a software bill of materials. So when you get a software thing, like we've been talking about drones, it's going to have a whole bunch of libraries in it. Some will be proprietary, some will be open source, and you don't know what's in it. The idea for a software bill of materials is to force a company to list all of the software components in the thing. And that's true whether it's a drone or a thermostat or a refrigerator or an iPhone or a computer. And that will let you, the consumer, or more likely some consumer agency who has the expertise, judge the risk of using all of these different libraries, some being proprietary, some being open source. And I think that is an interesting way to think about it because open source is just a... You know, these days, it's a cheap way to grab stuff. It doesn't mean it's any good. It just means it's publicly available and you're often able to use it without paying for it. But the nice thing about open source is that if you, a company, are using this open source library, you find some security flaws, you'll go back and fix the library and everybody else using the library benefits, right? So there is this, this nice bit of decentralization where we all benefit from the work you do. And some of this already happens, right? You know, IBM uses a whole bunch of open source software in their products. They find, they make improvements. They find problems. They fix problems. That gets fed back into the open source library. And every user benefits.
2: Yeah, clearly the benefit to the user is super, super evident when it comes to open source. Um, But another question that we had related to better security practices, um, and sort of on that note, is we want to know what your thoughts are on the role of machine learning in preventing attacks, um, especially since many robust machine learning systems often rely on large amounts of data. Earlier you know, today, you mentioned that data surveillance, they're all related, but what about data security? How are they related? How do we protect these centralized systems that do rely
1: on data and that can be used for good? Um, but do pose security threats? So there's a lot there. Machine learning is the new frontier of data. And you're right that a lot of machine learning relies on enormous data sets. Some of it is is highly personal. You think of the machine learning systems that figure out optimal driving routes based on surveilling everybody in a car in a city. Uh, Some of it is not personal. Think of Google Translate, which uses a lot of documents that are publicly available oddly they 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 use a lot of un documents because those tend to be translated into multiple languages and are very valuable for learning how to do uh language translation uh yes you're right we need to protect those uh, data sets better that's not a different problem than what we had previously uh, what is different is machine learning as a system itself that machine learning uh brings new risks, risks of bias, risks of, uh, of, non- of, of non-optimal outcomes, uh, risks that uh, the data can be itself manipulated. There's this entire field of adversarial machine learning, which has appeared in the last like four or five years, of how to attack machine learning systems in ways to get the systems to provide non-optimal results. I I also worry about uh, machine learning being used uh, as an attack vehicle, that can machine learning attack systems. We've talked about vulnerabilities in software. Can machine learning be used on the defense? Can it be used to find vulnerabilities and patch them? The answer to all these questions is yes. This is a very new area of security research and, and one kind of we're just feeling our way around. And, and I don't think we have anywhere near the answers yet. I mean, it's so new that it really didn't even appear at all in my latest book. And that was written two years ago. So this is very much on, on the front of, of what we're doing and thinking.
0: So we we talked a lot about um, Internet security and IoT and uh, surveillance today maybe we could also talk a little bit about the COVID-19 crisis since we are in the midst of it. Uh, at the beginning of the interview, you quickly touched on um, people are getting more aware uh, about those issues. And, and if the, uh, is it a valid trade off um, between public health out- better public health outcomes and government using my data for surveillance purposes? Um, but, but I just think there is progress being made, right? Google, Apple, many other researchers from various Uh, research universities are coming out saying we are going to develop contact tracing technologies uh, that will use Bluetooth technology or whatever that do not collect your location data, that do not, uh, we promise not to use the surveillance capitalism business model on it. Uh, So do you think we are heading towards the right direction in this crisis or or do you see behind all those facades they're still scheming something?
1: Yeah, I think they're not scheming anything. I think the apps are, are well designed for privacy protection. The problem is that contact tracing is kind of a dumb idea, and uh, I, I, we are finally coming around to that. It's sort of interesting to watch. Uh, Singapore was the most recent country to dump their contact tracing app, realizing this is actually not valuable. I mean, this is a standard security <laughs> problem of, uh, of identification, right? and the thing to look at are false positives and false negatives. And unfortunately, using an app for contact tracing just has too high an error rate to be valuable. So think of the false positives. Like what are the times that uh, you uh, the system registers a contact and you don't get the disease? For lots of reasons. Uh, the uh, the apps aren't as accurate as as people like to think. And between Bluetooth and GPS, there's a lot of drift. And there'll be there'll be times when the app doesn't register that you're close. The app doesn't understand context. So you can be very close, but there is a wall between you, a glass partition. Right? Any number of reasons why it's it's a contact as far as the app is concerned, but doesn't count as far as the disease is concerned. And lastly, the percent chance that a contact, which is less than six feet more than 10 minutes doesn't result in a transmission is pretty big so a lot of false positives on the other hand there'll be lots of false negatives and those are times you get the disease and the app doesn't register right so everybody's not going to have the app even Singapore which is a pretty compliant population only had a 20 percent penetration for the app again the error rates in, in the, uh, the Bluetooth and GPS, right times that the app doesn't think you're close enough, but you are, right? And also all the transmissions that happen further than six feet. So we've been reading about uh, transmissions that have happened in restaurants across the room through the ventilation system, uh, through surfaces that, that are touched then touched again at a later time. So I, we have this app. Very high, very high false negatives. I take the app. I go grocery shopping. I come home and it pings you had a contact. But well, what does that mean? <laughs> Should I isolate myself? No. Uh, we don't have ubiquitous, cheap, fast, accurate testing. I can't get tested. So the app tells me nothing useful. Same time, I go grocery shopping. The app comes back. It doesn't ring. Does that mean I'm safe? Well, it doesn't. You could have gotten the disease through any number of ways the app didn't register. So here's my problem. We give the app to people, they download it, all these errors happen, and suddenly people are now tweeting. This app doesn't work. I got the disease, the app didn't say anything. The app said I got the disease, I didn't get the disease. And now everyone loses trust in the app and the trust is vital. And having an app with so many errors is worse than having nothing at all because of that loss of trust. So I don't think Apple and Google are are trying to sneak in some surveillance system through this app. Honestly, they have all the surveillance they need. I don't think the government is either. It has all the surveillance it needs. I think there really is this desire of techies to do good, but this really isn't a problem that an app is going to solve. Real contact tracing is done by health professionals through interviews. Massachusetts is doing it this way right now. Uh, North, South Korea is doing it this way. And that works. It is not an app thing. And that's really why I'm not impressed with the apps as a solution.
0: So, what would be a good solution that you think could work from a technical perspective? Have you thought about it at all? Yes. Not to put you on the spot. Yes, please. Yes. Cheap, ubiquitous,
1: fast, accurate testing. That's what will work has nothing to do with your smartphone.
0: Just old fashioned testing. Nothing no, to I do with No, I want new fashioned
1: testing. I want <laughs> fancy testing. I want drive-through testing. I want I want people to be able to test themselves five times a day if they have to. I mean I want the kind of testing where everyone knows exactly where they stand at all times. I and mean, that's gonna do something. If people would know, I mean the problem is you can be asymptomatic. Right? You can pass on the disease without knowing you have it. That's what makes this so dangerous. If we can make that go away, I and mean, give everyone a sticker that, that they can tape to their forehead that glows that red when they have the disease, right? that would be great. And so that's the kind of stuff, I mean, it's science fiction, but that's what I want. Right? That's what will make a difference here.
0: Uh, so contact tracing technology doesn't sound like uh, as promising as it sounds, but um, what if after recovery, right after we've contained the virus in the recovery stage of the economy, in a place like China right now, where they collect uh, people's information and data and give you health passes, and everybody has a QR code on their phone and say, uh, "I have immunity, uh, immunity, or I got it and I have cured from it." So, so would that pose a serious concern to you? So so this is so we, we talk about this as immunity passports.
1: Right? The idea that I'm going to have some kind of wristband or code on my phone or something that says, I have immunity, so let me into the crowded nightclub or Disney World or the sports stadium or the restaurant. Uh, I think we should think really carefully, society, before we do this. My guess is it's coming because that has such value. I think there are, da- there are real liberty dangers here of having a society of haves and have-nots, of these sort of two tiers of citizen. And we should think very carefully about doing it. Uh, I mean, there are ways to do this correctly. You know, it's kind of no different than your driver's license. I mean, it's it's a credential you carry that gives you some permission, some capability. So we can do this technically. That's not hard. The real issues are, you know, are we, a do we as society want to do that? Is that the kind of world we want to live in? I think, I think we're heading that way. I'm not convinced it is the right thing to do, but technically there's no problem.
2: And to follow up about what you just said about civil liberties in particular, and I mean, you alluded to this earlier as well, you know, during times of crises, civil liberties often are impeded. Um, but what can we do to ensure after this crisis, fingers crossed, uh, it does end eventually. What can we do um, going back to this grassroots level, to actually make sure that, fine, maybe the civil liberties are impeded now for a little bit, but we will return to a state of the world
1: in which they're no longer impeded. What can we do here? Well, we have to ensure that anything we do is temporary. And the phrase we like to use is necessary and proportionate. And we're okay with, as you said, in a time of crisis, you make trade-offs you wouldn't make otherwise, but they need to be necessary. Need to be, need to be proportionate. And, and when the crisis uh, goes away, you need to return to normal time. And that's what we didn't do well with September 11th. We didn't return to normal time. The crisis was the new normal. In a health crisis, I think you're more likely to than in that, you know, if there is a contact tracing app on your phone, it's not going to be there in five years. It's going to be there for this moment that we need it. So that is the way to think of it. It's hard. You know, we have a lot of function creep and it's easy when, when a measure's in place used for other things and then suddenly you, you can't, you can't lose it. In a place where surveillance will do really well in this crisis is some of the aggregate work you've seen. I mean, it's not based on individual surveillance, but it's based on population trends. So there is a, uh, a website, I forget the name of the company that has an interconnected thermostat. Uh, sorry, that's ther- a thermometer, fever thermometer. And they will post aggregate data on people's temperatures all across the United States. And that is very useful in detecting hot spots for COVID. Now, that doesn't affect civil liberties. It's anonymous data, it's aggregate data, and it's really powerful. So you will see uh this used uh when we're testing how well social distancing is working so on so by and large what are the what are the trends in this city versus that city on how well people are social distancing Uh, that kind of aggregate temperature data that's very valuable and and i like those uh those uses of of technology and i think they give valuable insights to health professionals Uh,
0: before we wrap up i also want to just quickly ask you are you a pessimist optimist because it doesn't sound like you are too much of an optimist.
1: <laughs> I tend to be a short-term pessimist and long-term optimist. I believe we will solve all these problems. I don't believe this is the end of democracy and liberty and our, our society. I don't think the surveillance is, is what it'll be forever. I think it'll take a lot of work and a lot of time. I think it'll probably take a generational shift. That The generation in charge now is not the generation that's going to solve these problems they're going to perpetuate them? And it's the younger generation that's going to solve them. But I am long-term very optimistic. You know, we in our society have solved some pretty major problems over the past two centuries that are greater than this one. And I think we'll solve this one as well.
0: Uh, so since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I just want to ask you at the end, uh, what's your punchline here you know, for security, privacy, surveillance, capitalism, COVID, anything?
1: I don't have a punchline.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe the punchline could just be uh, that you are a short-term optimist, a short-term pessimist and long-term optimist. And,
1: and, and security is always a trade-off. I mean, I've got, I'm getting a lot of flack on my blog uh, yesterday and today because I use Zoom and Zoom had a lot of security problems. That's uh, you know, you, you use platforms even though they're not perfect.
0: But you won't use Google that's uh that's something. i
1: don't use google it is that's true great. although google has most of my email
0: because if i don't use google all of you use google <laughs> <laughs> the whole princeton email is all hosted by google so this is inevitable. lots of companies do that that's right <laughs> anyways thank you so much for joining me mr schneier it's been such a wonderful and fascinating conversation thank you so much hey thank you yeah. Uh, And thank you, Ayushi, for helping me out with those uh, questions. You've asked some wonderful, wonderful questions. Thanks a lot.
2: Thanks, Tiger. Thanks, Bruce.
0: Awesome. All right. Um, And and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, uh, Please visit us on Uh, uh, policypunchline.com. You you may learn more about Bruce's work. Uh, On his uh, website, is it schneier.com, I believe, Mr. Schneier? Perfect. It is. And you should all buy this book. Click here to kill everybody, a security and survival in a hyper-connected world. Um, and, And that concludes this episode. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rubinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.